0: Ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients needed for optimal health. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line based on the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research that closes the nutrient gap so you can feel and perform your best. Unlike most supplements, which use cheap synthetic ingredients your body can't absorb, our products are made with clinician-grade, bioavailable ingredients that make a real and noticeable difference. We have a full range of products, from the most advanced multivitamin and phytonutrient formula on the market, to a blend of eight organic superfood mushrooms, including reishi, chaga, and lion's mane, to a highly absorbable liquid D3K2 dropper. Our newest product is BioVail Omega Plus, a blend of ultra-pure fish oil and the most bioavailable forms of curcumin and black seed oil in a single two soft gel serving. Fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil are renowned for their powerful health benefits, but until now they've only been available in separate products, which means higher cost and a lot of pills. BioVail Omega Plus gives you a natural and effective way to improve joint and muscle health, boost exercise performance and recovery, elevate mood and mental clarity, and regulate immune function. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everyone, Chris Crasser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. I've had the pleasure of treating many kids and teens in my practice over the past 15 years. And as you might imagine, uh, behavioral and mental health conditions like anxiety, depression, OCD, panic attacks, ADHD, and a whole range of issues were quite common in that population. We know that from statistics, and it was no different in my work with these kids and teens. And I was always struck by the surprise that parents would express when I suggested that The roots of their children's condition might actually be physiological. Uh, Things like gut dysbiosis or nutrient deficiency or chronic infections or other inflammatory conditions that were actually driving the psychological, behavioral, and emotional symptoms that their kids were experiencing. And in fact, uh, in many cases, no, no doctor previously had ever suggested that. It wasn't really even on their radar. They were just purely treating it as a psychological or behavioral disorder, often with medications that were designed to address the symptoms, but were not even touching the uh, fundamental root cause of these disorders. So I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Kenneth Bach as my guest today. He received his M.D. from the University of Rochester School of Medicine back in 1979. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Family Practice and the American College of Nutrition and is a certified nutrition specialist as well, and the founder of the Bach Integrative Medicine Clinic in Red Hook, New York. And he's been a pioneer and leader in the field of integrative medicine for a long time, four decades. Uh, He's the author of several books, and most relevant to the conversation today He is an expert on the new childhood epidemics of autism, ADHD, asthma, and allergies. And in particular, he has done a lot to bring our attention to the physiological roots of these conditions, like how some of the things that I just mentioned, like nutrient deficiency, gut dysbiosis, tick-borne infections, other types of infections, can be either primary or at least contributing factors to these psychological and behavioral health conditions. And I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Bach about this because, like I said, there's just not enough awareness uh, in the general community uh, about that link, and it's the fastest way to make progress on these conditions in many cases. So I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's jump in. Dr. Kenneth Bach, such a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been really looking forward to this.
1: My pleasure to be with you, Chris.
0: So, you and I uh, have been treating kids and adolescents and teens for some time. You for quite a bit longer, I think. You have four (laughs) decades of experience in this field. And uh, one of the things I've always been struck by, you know, when I would uh, treat a, a child and, you know, they're Oftentimes, uh, one or both parents is there, and I would suggest the possibility that their ADHD or depression, anxiety might have a physiological or biological root, like disrupted gut microbiome or chronic infection, a tick-borne illness, nutrient deficiency. The response was often, huh? (laughs) Or, or, you know, something to, like, like no one had ever suggested that as a possibility. It was never really even on the radar. And oftentimes they were, they were relieved because there was some, something that they could possibly address or some, some cause or reason that, that could make sense for, for what was happening. But I'm just curious, like when did you become aware of this in your career? And what has your experience been over the past 10 years, let's say, in terms of the awareness of this in, in the medical field and, and in the general public?
1: Now, that's kind of two questions. Let me go, let me take the mm-hmm. first one because that goes back more than ten years. Sure, of course. <laughs> this is my 40th year. You make me feel a little bit older there. Chris. <laughs> it's great
0: experience. Experience. You know what? Valuable. I actually,
1: I actually think it's invaluable because you know when, when you've seen thousands and thousands of kids like I have, you really, I tell parents they have an n of one, and when you have n of thousands, it really makes a difference. Yeah. And and what how you can treat so. But it really dates. It's really interesting. It dates back to my, the first book I wrote was 1997, called "The Road to Immunity," and at that point I uh, was really researching the immune system and um, talked a little about this. Uh, these little peptides called transfer factors. Somebody had read it and got in touch with me, and I started to do some research on transfer factors. There's little tiny peptides that are immune modulators. That means they, you know, they balance the immune system. And then, uh, and I was really looking how it affected at that time, TH1, TH2, it was not, there really wasn't a lot about TH17 at that time, I think it came after, so it was mostly TH1, TH2, it wasn't always clear cut, but I was doing a lot of research, and in autism society, they got a a hold of my, uh, some of my writings, my research, and asked me to speak, And I spoke at this conference, um, probably like a thousand parents. And I was, they didn't know me really. So I was at the end of the conference, one of those things that they put you, in the not sure. And because I had this integrative medicine approach, it really hit the uh, parents and, and the practitioners in the audience. Anyway, to make it short, a lot of the parents started to bring kids to see me in the spectrum. And, you know, I had a lot of success with an integrative medicine approach because I figured out that over time you had to subtype the kids, just like what you said, with all the different kind of potential causative factors. And so, and that was microbiome and infections and autoimmunity and, and inflammation. Inflammation was the underlying thing for so many of the kids. And as parents start to travel from all over the country and and then eventually all over the world, they'd bring their other kids and they say, hey, would you mind, I know they're not in the spectrum, do you mind seeing this so-and-so-and-so-and-so? Who has anxiety or depression or panic attacks or OCD, mood dysregulation. And I said, sure. And applying the same approach, I was able to find that so many of them were also affected by so many of these underlying medical biological conditions, including inflammation and specifically brain or neuroinflammation. And so eventually, after you know, at least around 10 years of that at least, I said, you know what, I really have to try to put this together. Uh, Because it's not just the spectrum that I had seen so much, and then it was all of a sudden hundreds and thousands of kids, neurotypical kids, some of who were, like, quote, normal, and then, like, deteriorated really rapidly in terms of, you know, an infection-driving brain autoimmunity. So that's really what drove me to it.
0: Mm. And what's it been like over the past 5, 10 years? Are you seeing more acceptance of these ideas amongst your colleagues, or is it still you know been a challenge in that regard
1: now definitely more acceptance there's no I mean there's more and more research out there so when we first started it was interesting I mean it's like my whole career has been defined by treating conditions that became so obvious to me yet many physicians didn't believe existed you know uh mm-hmm. reactive hypoglycemia that still physicians don't believe exists chronic candidiasis or fungal dysbiosis. You know, now, of course, the microbiome is huge. But when we first started, you know, and I've been doing work with the microbiome my whole career, they didn't believe it. Come on, you're going to be probiotics. (laughs) You know, I mean, really, you look at Lyme disease. So I spent the, 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 the beginning part of my career treating all these kids with recurrent ear infections who were getting antibiotics. And we had to find out that they had a milk allergy or they had chronic candida and dysbiosis and things. And now I treat so much tick-borne disease with antibiotics because, yeah. and, then, and then now they don't believe this chronic lie. and that you don't right. need. So it's it's really interesting. So for this whole thing of what's usually referred to as pans and pandas, I don't actually like to use those terms as much because of the quote controversy uh, in some yeah. physicians. So I like, as you, you read the book. Uh, infection-triggered autoimmune encephalitis, or in lay terms, mm-hmm. infection-triggered autoimmune brain inflammation, which I think really kind of sizes it up for the most part. And um, I think lay people have really, the parents have uh, ability to understand that. So I do think to get around to the answer is that there is more acceptance, no question. But there were for a while, and there still are, but there are less pockets like I mean places where because in the medical school I'm not going to give a name because I don't want to I, I don't want to uh you know sound like I'm a, of a place but a really well-known medical school in another state they the the pediatricians would say well our doctors at the medical school don't believe in this therefore we don't believe in it it would literally be we don't believe in it so how could you not believe in it? A kid is normal they 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 get an infection they de- they rapidly become an alien with all these neuropsych symptoms that could be so severe, but we don't believe it exists. But thankfully that's changed.
0: Yeah, I'm thankful for, for that changing because that was it's it's hard enough to be a parent with a child who's struggling with those issues. But then if you go into the doctor and report it and you're made to feel like you're imagining it or it you know, it's got that that's so brutal for a parent to deal with. And I've had so many parents over the years come to me in tears, you know, basically being, they were, because, because nobody believed them, their experience wasn't valued as a parent. um, And they were just told that it was some kind of imaginary thing that they they and their kid were, were making up. It it was a horrific experience. And I mean, I think, I I love what you said about candida and, and fungal overgrowth, because That was, if you were to mention fungal overgrowth or candida at a medical conference, that was probably like a surefire way of getting yourself laughed out of a room or eye rolls (laughs) or whatever. And now you look in PubMed and you can find papers correlating fungal dysbiosis with Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel conditions and all, all kinds of stuff. You know, it's, it's all there in the literature, and people like yourself and Leo Galland and others were, have been talking about this for for years, but nobody not being taken seriously. And now that we have the the published research to support it, it's it's sort of like a tacit, oh, okay, I guess
1: I guess there was something to this all along. No, yeah, that that's not always said, by the way, Chris. Sometimes it's like yeah. we just we just discovered it. This is like, a right, discovery. exactly. Yeah. Like, look what we found. <laughs> um, anyways, it's, it's positive development
0: for all of us that this is yes. now, um, being accepted in, in even within, uh, at least within the scientific community, you know, as you said, it hasn't necessarily percolated down. I've, I've often found, and I'm sure you have, there's a, 10 20 even 30 year gap between what's showing up in the scientific literature and and what you might find it with your primary care provider or even in medical schools which ironically can be the last to change <laughs> because they're just so deeply
1: entrenched in the current paradigm right oh really yeah i mean there's i don't I, we don't have the time but there's a whole story about penicillin.
0: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah we don't we well, don't
1: use it at the medical center how could it how could it be, how
0: could it work? Right. That's- well, I want, I want to dive in now. It was a good segue. You mentioned um, just just calling these conditions what they are. It was an autoimmune inflammatory reaction in the brain. And that, you know, let's talk about some of the, of, of the mechanisms here and causes. You know, we've mentioned the gut microbiome, dysbiosis, infections, and things like that. But let's talk a little bit about how, for example, disrupted microbiome might lead to inflammation and an autoimmune attack against the brain. You know, some of the research has come out around gluten and gluten's effects on the brain and certain kids, you know, whatever, whatever direction you want to go is fine. But I think it's helpful for parents to understand some of these mechanisms,
1: at least at a high level. The gut-brain connection is so key. And I have to say, it's been a key for those of us in this field for so long, you know, with, with anything from arthritis to dermatitis to, to brain issues you know um, you can treat brain fog and all this confusion with an antifungal and it goes away you didn't give them anything quote for the brain so the, the key is that there are many things that can cause the intestinal lining to become more permeable and that can range from gluten and casein these are like dietary peptides to all kinds of infections, anything from viral to bacterial to fungal, to parasitic uh, toxicants, even some drugs. There are so many things that can do that and, and even stress. So, and when the gut becomes more permeable and, you know, it's a, you know, in lay terms we call it a leaky gut, but it, it, you know, in medical terms, it's intestinal hyperpermeability. It, there are these tight junctions and they're important because if you think of what it, People can only think of what they shovel into their mouth and in their guts on a daily basis. It's pretty scary. So the gut has to be able to discern what it can let through, what's friend, what's foe, what it has to react to. And you don't want it reacting to everything because you're going to be in trouble, especially if it's it's good stuff. So when something affects the gut, makes it more permeable, it, it loosens these tight junctions, allows these mediators, whether they be metabolized from the microbiome to any kind of uh, inflammatory mediators that are uh, initiated by whatever is happening, whether it be an infection or uh, gluten or what have you. And it gets into the circulation, gets up to the brain. And then, quite frankly, I have slides that show the, the, the actual connections between the endothelial cells, which are these cells that, you know, these single cells that are in the tiny Capillaries in the brain, that's where all the action is, they have tight junctions the same way. And so those tight junctions get loosened, and then you have a leaky gut, leaky brain, you have a leaky blood brain barrier. And that allows all these inflammatory mediators, whether they be immune globulins, because they're pretty large, they're large molecules, and these inflammatory uh, immune cells, and then they wreak havoc on the nerve cells and, and the companion cells in the brain. So that is the connection. And if you don't heal the gut, you don't get people better, That's that's with this brain inflammation, but that's also with arthritis, and it's also with, the gut is so key. So that's why we really, that's really one of our main focuses. And if a kid is constipated and a kid is having all these GI issues, you really have to tend to that first or they won't get better. Yeah, I've
0: seen, it's almost like show me a kid with a behavioral disorder, I'll show you a kid with a gut disorder it's maybe not a one-to-one correlation but it's pretty darn close in most cases and they may not even come into the clinic complaining of gi issues or maybe you know maybe the psychological behavioral symptoms are more prominent but when you do a history and you start asking questions about you know, how frequently do you have bowel movement? Oh, once every three or four days, you know, like it's, it's not something that's even on their radar as being abnormal or something that needs to be addressed, but it's certainly contributing, you know, a contributing factor. And is it, I mean, is it any wonder with antibiotics, highly processed and refined foods, the, all of the dyes and processed foods that, you know, kids are exposed to all of the other um, things that, that, threaten the gut microbiome these days, like we're really now seeing the in the last two generations, the effects of all of these changes.
1: 100%. 100%.
0: Yeah. So, aside from the gut brain axis, what are some of the other um, and everything that goes along with that? I mean, that is kind of a, a foundational factor, even with some of these other challenges that we might talk about. but. You mentioned chronic infections. Um, what are some of the other things you tend to look for when somebody, you know, a kid or an adolescent or teen comes and presents with these behavioral or psychological conditions?
1: I don't want to skirt over the chronic infections because they can be acute infections like strep, which is the Absolutely. classic. Absolutely, yeah. it's an immune response. And I think people need to understand that when your immune system reacts to an infection like strep it recognizes it and it makes these antibodies. It has T cells that get into uh, the, the fray and also these antibodies made by B cells. But there are these what's called epitopes on the strep. These are very, very tiny parts of peptides, extremely small. But one of those epitopes can look exactly like a piece of the basal ganglia in the brain. So when you're immune you them to make antibodies to strep, it may see this part of the brain called the basal ganglia and react to that, thinking it's strep. We call it molecular mimicry. So that's one of the the uh, pathophysiological uh, you know mechanisms uh, of how it happens. In addition to these T cells, inflammatory T cells. So so the strep is one. And the, the last patient I had today was acute recurrent strep infections, uh, six year old, from January through this year five, and every time he never had a sore throat all he had was mood dysregulation hyper adhd uh, vocal tics and loud noises you know and finally somebody recognized him and, and and then referred him to me because they recognized that it was the strep that was doing this so so that's strep but i think the tick borne is something i want to make, really emphasize because that's something that i pick up so much and is missed you know this kid had tick bite when he was a year old and didn't have a bullseye, so I never got tested or treated. So obviously, I'm checking it for ticks, uh, uh, tick-borne disease. But that's one of the things, and it's not only Lyme disease, Chris, as you know. It's co-infections. It's Bartonella, it's Babesia, and Mycoplasma and things. But so many kids, if they get tested for Lyme, they'll get this one Lyme titer from a general lab that's not really very good for Lyme. Stats show that can only be maybe 55% sensitive. So they get a negative test. There. You don't have Lyme. It's a lousy test anyway, and they haven't even looked at the co-infections, especially Bartonella when it comes to RAGE, which is what we call Bartonella RAGE. So I think it's so important. The key is that your doctor, whoever they see, considers the possibility of infections. And that can range from strep to mycoplasma to chlamydia to all the tick-borne infections. Viral infections. And virals like Epstein-Barr and CMV and mm-hmm. you know, all those things. But so we do a very thorough uh infection profile and we see somebody like I did today and and you have to so okay, um because I always say if they have a tick point infection and if you you we see a lot of people from endemic areas, which means that ticks are known to be there, and these kids are out playing soccer and the the a ball goes in towards you go get and half the, almost half the people generally don't, they, they don't always get a tick bite and they don't get the rash, so it's just important to have it on the top of your mind, okay and um and some of these infections are ubiquitous. So Yeah, and becoming more common. Totally, totally. I mean, Lyme disease, at one point they were saying it was 30,000 a year. And then a few years ago, the CDC recognized it, well, it's actually 300,000 a year. And now it's up in, into the fours, for 50 infections per year. It's, it's really common. But the other thing, it's anything that causes inflammation has to be considered. And I, I want to make sure that people know, I'm not saying that every psych Symptom and disorder has a medical, biological underpinning. It's not you. There, you know, uh, you know, a kid, you know, uh, a girlfriend breaks up with the boyfriend, and vice versa, and one of them is, is you know, uh, all of a sudden they're really depressed, and 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 hopefully not suicidal, but it can be that bad, you know. I mean, that's a psychological thing. Now, uh, that act, that stress actually causes inflammation, but that is, you know, it's a, it's a psych trigger. That the point being is that 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 is sometimes sometimes a panic disorder is a panic disorder there's a past trauma this or that even though a lot of times those things do cause inflammation but it's like anything that can contribute to inflammation like allergies like the kid today it turns out we test we test them for allergies they got a milk allergy and each tons tons of milk and cheese well that could make a huge difference in this kid's psyche sometimes milk can cause depression and psych symptoms and not just bloating gas diarrhea those kind of things that we think of and it's nutritional imbalances, you know, because a lot of the nutrients are involved in the neurotransmitters. So we look at B6, zinc, magnesium, uh, methyl B12, methylfolate, and we even look at the MTHFR gene, which is the gene that helps one uh, convert folic acid to the active methylfolate for the brain. So, and it's not always a frank deficiency. Sometimes it's just an imbalance, and so we have to be aware of this. So we test a lot of more metabolic parameters and functional tests rather than just a static level. And vitamin D is a key, key level because for the blood-brain barrier, vitamin D is important as well as for proper functioning immune system. So all those things, and then hormones. We see a lot of kids that may have thyroid dysfunction and adrenal dysfunction. And along with adrenal dysfunction, you may see reactive hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. And you get the right history where a kid who he gets hangry, that whole hangry where he doesn't eat frequently, yeah. then gets really angry and can even rage or, you know, might might get shaky or whatever. And it's discounted. It's just not looked at. And I just don't understand, quite frankly, Chris, why it, sometimes it's so blatant.
0: Yeah, I think uh, another big one um, is sleep deprivation there, Mm -hmm. which of course is inflammatory, affects the gut microbiome, affects hormone levels, everything that we've basically been talking about. Kids these days and teens are burning the candle at both ends, you know, especially as you know, when uh, the adolescent teen years uh, set in, they actually start to need more sleep again. You know, there's a period of time from like 8 to 12 where the the sleep – number of hours of sleep that is are required drops a little bit compared to younger years. And then it increases again at the very time when kids are being asked to wake up earlier, go to school early, you know, they're staying up later because their chronotype is shifting. I've seen a lot of kids, teens and stuff, who are going to bed at, you know, 11, 12 at, at night because that's how their chronotype is kind of shifting. And then they're waking up at Sticks in the you know six or six thirty in the morning to go to school i mean they're they're literally two or three hours less getting two or three hours less sleep than they need and that to me is kind of catastrophic in terms of the consequences
1: and i, and I agree i think it's frequent i really feel like teens are in a in a pickle because school is starting in order earlier because they want to allow for the team sports and the extracurricular i get it yeah but but then they're up and it's also, you know, they're up with so yeah, on on social media, on they're phones and on, on, on phones, and that's going to keep them from going to sleep. So I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I mean, I really think that teens are getting bombarded these days. It is not easy being a teen. Much harder than I think it was in our day. Much harder.
0: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely feel that way as well. And then just, you know, not not to. A gloss over this too much either is, you know, yes, there are kids who are gluten intolerant, there are kids who are casein intolerant, but even just kids who don't have those intolerances, if they're eating mostly flour, sugar, industrial seed oil, which is now like 60% of the calories that the average American eats, those those foods are, metab- are you know, the bad bacteria and fung- uh, fungi in our guts just absolutely have a field day with those types of foods. And that in and of itself could drive gut dysbiosis that can cause these kinds of problems. And as you know, over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of, of research on this inflammatory cytokine model of depression. For example, it was always, you know, the idea in the past was that depression is a, a imbalance of brain chemicals, serotonin, neurotransmitters, and Now, a lot of the more recent research suggests that it could actually be a gut-brain axis issue. It could be inflammation in the gut. Fire in the gut, fire in the brain, right? How long have we heard that in integrative medicine?
1: 100%. And that's why anti-inflammatories work. Listen, there's articles, and these don't have to be natural anti-inflammatories like curcumin and resveratrol and things, but they they can be even celecoxin, which there are articles on that. I use that a lot in the kids because... Unfortunately, NSAIDs can also contribute to a leaky gut, so there's always a right. risk. But yet, there are sometimes you add that, and it's huge. Some of the kids take uh, ibuprofen, and it makes a huge difference.
0: Yeah, it can be interesting too, just even as a therapeutic trial, right? To see like how much of a role is inflammation playing. You take a dose of NSAIDs, and if they have a huge response, then that's a good indicator that inflammation is a, is a primary driver of what's going on even if you then want to find other ways of managing the inflammation later. Right.
1: I always tell them like, so, cause I use also psych meds. I mean, sometimes they're so bad. You need it. I mean, yes. I'm not as big on SSRIs as I am on mood stabilizers. I happen to like the class much better, but sometimes low dose of bilifier and you need it. I mean, if a kid is so aggressive that it, the family's worried about it, but I always say, it's not enough to give a psych med. You always have to be looking for what's underlying it. But it doesn't mean that a psych med is not helpful for a while in a certain situations.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that you brought that in, and also before also said that you know we're not trying to be too reductionist here and say every single psychological behavioral issue is 100% biological physiological. There are still circumstantial factors that affect our mental health and, and behavioral health, and. But it, I think what you're saying here is we need to look at the whole picture together, and look for the root causes and try to address those root causes. And yes, if you need to use psych meds as a way of of giving relief to the kids and the parents and the families, then then sure. But don't only do that, right? Like don't 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 let that be the 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 stop the starting place or the stopping place, which is really what it is. In the conventional medical establishment, there's rarely any investigation into what the root causes might be, and and my concern there is those the psych meds don't they don't solve the problem they they help with the symptoms generally but but they're not actually addressing the the cause in most cases it seems
1: some of them are actually anti-inflammatory Chris so there actually is an inflammatory component of some of the psych meds but the same holds true with psychotherapy I mean I like them. All my kids to be going through, you know, psychotherapy because you have to help them cope. You have, you know, CBT. You have to teach them things. But that, that all this, and I, I think you saw. It, I said all the psychotherapy and all the psych meds in the world are not going to help a kid get well if he's got an underlying tick borne infection and, and autoimmune brain inflammation. It's just not going to do it. That's right. Yeah.
0: I'm so excited to tell you about a new product we just launched at Adapt Naturals. Fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil are renowned for their powerful health benefits. But until now, they've only been available in separate products, which means higher cost and a lot of pills. What's more, many fish oils on the market are rancid or contain toxins like heavy metals and PCBs. And curcumin and black seed oil are not well absorbed unless special preparations are used. Bioveil Omega Plus combines the purest and freshest fish oil with the most bioavailable forms of curcumin and black seed oil, so you get the incredible benefits of these nutrients in a single, two soft gel serving. Those benefits include supporting joint and muscle health, can boost your performance and recovery and feel more youthful and vital. Improving cognitive function and mood, sharpen your focus and memory and recover that spring in your step. Promoting metabolic and heart health, which helps maintain normal weight, blood sugar and cholesterol levels. And regulating immune function, which reduces immune hyperactivity and strengthens protection against viruses and other pathogens. This is an incredible product for anyone who needs extra support with inflammation, pain, joint issues, autoimmunity, cognitive function and mood, and metabolic and heart health. Visit adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com to place your order and experience the incredibly powerful benefits of fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil in BioAvail Omega Plus. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium, in easy to use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresserco slash Element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Likewise, if, you know, as you're kind of hinting at, there, even if there's a tick-borne illness and infection, you may need to address that and layer on some psychotherapy because some of those issues, once they get started, they, they can become kind of a loop, you know, or repetitive patterns of behavior that skillful therapy can be helpful in resolving. So, I know a lot of parents, and this this is not an easy question to answer probably, but I'm gonna ask it anyhow. A, a, a lot of parents are listening to this and probably relating, you know, and, and seeing, imagining their, that, that this is impacting their kids. And how do they get help? You know, obviously you're your one option. It's, it's, it's challenging, I think, for a lot of parents because if they take this kind of information to their local doctor, chances are pretty low that they're gonna be able to get the kind of help that they need, the testing that they need, you know, I think reading a, your book is is a really good start because then they get, understand the lay of the land. But uh, it's it's. I'll just say it's frustrating for me as a clinician, as a fellow who's been treating these kids for so long, just to to not be able to help more people <laughs> because there's a limit to how many people we can see, right?
1: Oh, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. You know, writing a book takes a while, and it you know because it doesn't reach as people all over there's actually been published in six languages now so it reaches people all over the world and yeah i'm not obviously people fly to me from all over the world but it, obviously i can't see everybody i'm not the only one who does it there are yeah, people have to go online there are you know pans and pandas organizations and there are support groups and the parents refer each other to doctors in different places and you know uh the problem is you know some are better than others and some are more thorough than others and you know, hopefully they the parents have to do their research and things, but I think more and more physicians are getting it, getting it. I hear more and more pediatricians who are open to it, who may start even giving an antibiotic for a little bit longer than they might for a strep throat, because a lot of times you have to treat a pandasin for at least 30 days, let's say. So there's a little bit more of an opening, and and then if it's beyond them, if it's a real complicated case, they refer it. So I think all we can do is hope to educate and the parents have to do their research. I mean, you know, and obviously see people and, you know, it does make a difference if they're experienced, I have to be honest. I see some people that have seen certain people come to see me and they say, we've done everything. And I look and I say, not even, you probably see the same thing, not even close. Right, you know, same thing with kids in the spectrum. I mean, not even close, but so, you know, it is frustrating, but I think more and more there are more options. The parents. And I, I do think maybe starting to, with uh, the book I wrote or other books like that that can give them a lay of the land and give them an understanding of what they may be looking for and what may be going on. Because it makes them also realize that they're not crazy and their kids may be not crazy, but there's actually something going on.
0: Yeah. I think we've already touched on some of these points, but I want to, like, summarize it and condense it. Um, what are some of the signs you look for, like, some, if, if a kid comes to the clinic with complaining of some of these issues, that psychological or behavioral issues, what are some of the signs, top signs you look for that would indicate there may be, phys- you know, biological or physiological factors. You talked about constipation and gut issues, of course, but what, what other signs or symptoms do you, are, are the biggest red flags for you to to go looking for I think
1: that the one is the timeline is, you know, is the frequently the abrupt onset from a kid who is really, you know, I, I get these kids who are top of the heap, you know, I mean, they're, they're great athletes. They're really, you know, eight plus students. They got tons of friends. And you know, within a very short time, whether it's overnight, which you can be, or within a certain period of time, they they become demons. They become different kids. You know, they're crying, they're aggressive, they're and they don't have an obvious psych trigger like, uh, uh you know, a boyfriend dropped them or or they're getting intensely bullied. You always have to think about that, and I I always question whether if they're very different in school and home, that's that's a clue that it may not. I mean. It, you know, if you're very good in school and you have only issues at home, that may be the behavioral issues of a teenager, and what we call teenage So it's really those kind of questions that you have to ask. So the timing of it, what makes it better? Hey, you know, you give a kid, a, a, they get sick and then they, they probably don't correlate that they then, that they deteriorate psychologically, but you give them an antibiotic and, and they get better and you can't always see that. But if if it's a kind of a repeated thing, uh, or if it's they have bowel problems, or if they have other symptoms, do they do they have, have they had a tick bite? Do they do they live in a, a, an endemic area? Are they out there hiking and camping? Those kind of things for tick borne things, but uh, even thyroid, you know, the, are they are they cold when others aren't? Are they are they gaining weight when and they're not on a psych med that's going to cause them to gain weight? Are they constipated? Do they have dry hair and dry skin? And is it related to eating? You know, do they get worse? Do they somehow have more emotional dysregulation after they eat, which may be like a food allergy or sensitivity, or when they don't eat, like a low blood sugar, where they get shaky or tremulous and and hangry and stuff. So, I mean, I think it's just a matter of, but even before the testing, that's why at the end of every chapter in the book, I put in all these questions that they, you know, the kind of clues because you know a lot of times the whole thing, as you probably as a clinician. You know, really, I do a physical on everybody and that certainly can help, but that that doesn't take that long. It's the history that really points you, you know, 95% of the time, you know, what's happening after you've done a really, really good history and the labs confirm it. You know, so, you know, I always say I treat kids. I don't treat the lab. The labs confirm it. And obviously I can't tell them what their zinc level is or their vitamin D level is or which tick borne they have, although I have my thoughts and, you know, hopefully after 40 years, (laughs) I'm right some of the time.
0: Got some educated guesses yeah. there.
1: Yeah, you call them educated guesses, but, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot
0: of clues. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about labs, because this is a common scenario I'm sure you've you've seen, you know, over and over, where a parent comes in and says, we've had the labs done, they're all normal. And and it, it is typical, in, in my experience with a lot of these kids, that basic labs might be normal. So if they have just a very rudimentary, you know, blood workup where they're, uh, they're, t- they're fasting glucose and, you know, um, just maybe like a CMP uh, comprehensive metabolic panel and some of the basic tests that a primary care physician might order all come back normal, or at least within the standard reference ranges that, you know, that, that are used. But that's, those are not the labs that you're talking about, I imagine, you know, you're talking about probably much, you know, the, the functional integrative medicine labs or more detailed blood work that's looking at inflammatory, you know, uh, cytokines or markers of inflammation, um, more specific nutrient analysis, et cetera. So, can you talk a little bit about the the labs that you uh, yeah. find most
1: helpful? You need a CBC and a chem profile, or because you need to be able to look at liver and kidney because certainly if you're going to use any medicines you have to make sure those things are okay and with tick-borne they can be abnormal you can have a low white count you can have platelets affected liver function affected so you have to look at that stuff uh, then yet we do an in-depth tick-borne evaluation I wouldn't say on everybody but on anybody that I think it may be playing a role and it's certainly a lot of the kids and so that's much more comprehensive it doesn't only look at Lyme and it and we send them to uh, labs that really specialize in tick-borne infections, So that, we, you know, really the the, the literature really shows the variability of labs and how the regular labs really, it, literally for a Lyme titers, 55% of the time, it picks it up. It's almost 50-50. So, you know, we use much better labs. So that's those. And then you have to remember from the regular labs, you can get strep titers and you can get mycoplasma and chlamydia and you can get your viral titers. That all can come from regular labs. And then the more integrative labs. Well, we will also do food allergies, which again, and 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 depending, like this kid had, if they have seasonal allergy, can do inhalants as well. Those again can come from regular labs, but if you do food sensitivities, that's going to have to go to a specialized integrative lab, and um, and you can check zonulin and and, and markers of intestinal permeability uh, or hyperpermeability. And we get stool analysis that are really look at the microbiome and look at absorption. So many of the kids have malabsorption. I mean, it's not the majority, but certainly a number of them have malabsorption. And so you, you, you have to see that and so many have dysbiosis. It's just uncanny. And then we do a, nutri, uh, you know, some kind of a nutritional evaluation. So again, not only just static going to like a lab core quest and just getting a B1 and B6 level, but getting markers where those, Yeah, you get, uh, you can test enzyme activity, you can test metabolites, and those metabolites, if they're low or high, can reflect the activity or inactivity of uh, a certain nutrient, like B12, or B6, or B1, or zinc, or or magnesium. And we do look at minerals and heavy metals, always. You have to be. So many of the kids are magnesium deficient, zinc deficient.
0: Or lead, you know, lead, lead, mercury, cadmium, and, and arsenic
1: more and common. Toxic. Yeah, mm-hmm. mercury for sure. Lead is a biggie. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and it's missed because it's it's not looked at. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, this is what I wrote in 1997. I can't I mean it goes way back. I said if you don't look, you won't see, and yeah. if you listen, you won't hear. And how many? I and again, I don't want to put down pediatricians anyway because they're doing their best. They're having to see so many kids in a day, but absolutely. If you say, oh, you eat eat a a healthy American diet, you're fine. They'll never look at, maybe some of them are looking at vitamin D now, but not a lot. But they're not going to ever look at zinc or magnesium or whatever. And and so many kids are zinc deficient, you know, or relatively have a relative zinc insufficiency. And I think that's a big point that needs to be made. You don't have to be frankly deficient to need certain nutrients to help. Help you. You know, we all heard of that with people taking zinc, vitamin D, and vitamin C as the trio for COVID.
0: You know, that's right. It's, 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 we've moved, we've, we've, we're beyond the, you know, we've largely conquered scurvy and rickets and beriberi and pellagra. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the optimal level of nutrients that can help us thrive and, you know, live long, healthy life. And there's been so much research over the past you know, two decades that suggests that that level is so much higher than the low end of the, you know, RDA or threshold at which an acute deficiency syndrome would take place, like beriberi or ricketts. And unfortunately, a lot of the lab reference ranges are still configured in such a way that they're really designed to detect those acute deficiency syndromes and not chronic nutrient shortage. And on the flip side of that, it's the same with the heavy metals, right? Where you know, historically our understanding of toxicity was like what is the level of mercury that will cause an acute mercury poisoning syndrome, you know, that would lead someone to be in in the hospital was not what's the level of mercury that could cause a chronic inflammatory response over a longer period of time and that's in reality that's far more common in the population to have that level of mercury than it is for someone to have mercury poisoning you know that that's pretty rare
1: exactly no and it has to be recognized because because the the point that I think you just were making is also it's individual so it's like not everybody needs the same level of nutrients like that because of your physiology and your metabolism, your genetics, you may need more vitamin B1 or vitamin B6, or methyl B12. Or so- you
0: have an MTHFR polymorphism and you need more active folate than folic acid. And, and if you have that polymorphism, you probably don't detoxify very well. So what, what, I, what, what might be a, a perfectly harmless level of cadmium or arsenic for someone else might actually be harmful for that person because they can't biotransform or detoxify it very well.
1: So the point you're making, and I think, and I certainly would totally agree, is this is all intertwined. And that's why it's more complicated. It's in kind of more of a net-like fashion. It's not linear. And it is dose-dependent. So that's why when people have done everything, you know, we take this multi and it has everything in it. When you look at the doses and they're so low and like for some of these kids who may have dysautonomia, or POTS, you know, which where they get, they can, and they stand up and they get either dizzy lightheaded, get rapid heartbeats and have fatigue and all that stuff, that sometimes a much higher dose of thiamine, vitamin B1 can be helpful in addition to some of the other, the salt and fluids and everything. But the point being is that it's varied. Some, you know, your B6 is important for metabolizing some of the neurotransmitters. And some people need much higher doses of B6 and, and the metabolic P5P and zinc than others. And so I think the key is that it's not one size fits all. And I think that's really, if you know that, and you don't have one approach to everything, you have a chance of success. If you have your one protocol for everybody, you will hit some. So you will, you know, and there's no question about it, but you'll miss so many others. And I think I've prided myself for over all these years to be what I call rather eclectic. I'm really, you know, hopefully I've gained knowledge in all these areas over the years and, And you do what each kid needs. And sometimes what that kid needs, another doctor might not agree, unfortunately. And I tell the parents that, listen, I think this is what you need. And you, you know, you'll have to decide we we always weigh weigh the risk benefits like longer term antibiotics and stuff. You always have to weigh them and you have to protect people from antibiotics just like, you know, from psych meds or anything else. You always, there are nutrients we can give um, like NAC and, Certain herbs like milk thistle, you can protect the liver. You can protect the gut with great probiotics and spore-based probiotics and Saccharomyces, all that stuff. So the key is that you just don't throw things at people without being aware of what they can do and how you can protect them and how you can deal with any side effects if you see it. And I think that's the misunderstanding in medicine. They they think that certain things. Oh no, that's that's a problem. When you could really, if you're if you test people in antibiotics, if they have tick-borne disease every month, looking at liver, kidney, and blood counts. Yeah, you know, if something pops up, you hold it, you stop it. So the key is to be aware, to be very thorough and to be very comprehensive. That's how I think with these kinds of situations.
0: I appreciate that a lot. And I think it's 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 crucial, especially as we move forward. Um, I think, you know, this more individualized medicine. Is is really the future, and, and should have been the past too. But you know, we we didn't have the, the you know the the wherewithal and the resources to be able to do it. And you know, look, I have a lot of respect for what we've been able to accomplish with conventional medicine. You know, the ability that we, we're starting to be able to regenerate tissue and you know cure blindness and um, you know pretty incredible technological advances and then also incredible research. But one of the challenges with the way the research is set up is you know, this double-blind placebo-controlled trial was really designed as a way of determining whether of drug efficacy and effectiveness and assuming that the fundamental assumption there is that a treatment will work the same way with everybody, right, that that's baked into the concept of a randomized controlled trial. And you know I've had this conversation with Mark Hyman a few times, and he was you know really dealing with a lot at Cleveland Clinic and trying to figure out how to study functional medicine because it, by definition it's a personalized, individualized treatment, so it doesn't mesh with this ra- concept of a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial with a single intervention that everyone is is doing. So it it strikes me like. It, what you're talking about, what we're talking about, is much harder, much more complex, much more individualized, and much more difficult to study, frankly, in at least the way that we have set things up so far.
1: You know, I think part of it, you have to accept that. I'm One of my best friends is a cardiologist, and, you know, we uh, love each other. We are so close, can talk about everything, but we just don't talk about medicine because he he just sees it as that. And in, in, in cardiology, that's how it is for them. It's the double blind, you know. and. And now calcium scores. Interestingly enough, now you know they were always uh, statins and knocking down cholesterol to you know not to zero, but to less than seventy. Blah blah blah. blah. I and mean, we know cholesterol is important for uh, function of uh, cell membranes. Felt, yeah. But now it's the calcium scores, which I which I happen to agree with, and that if you don't have a elevated calcium score, maybe you don't need a statin. So so their studies, they will make those changes. I think in our field, we have to be more flexible and more open. To research that is not maybe as large and double-blind, placebo-controlled, but is is enough to let us know that boy, this makes sense. The mechanism makes sense. You see, it's helping certain people, and the fact that it doesn't help everybody, you know, it's from my perspective. In in autism, was this thing called secretin, right? It's a neurohormone secretin. Well, there are kids that talk when you gave them secretin. Now you could say, oh, it's in the in the imagination. I saw. Uh, Kids that benefited, I had parents swear to me that they did, but they did double-blind studies. And unfortunately, the outliers were just seen as outliers and they actually, you mesh them all together. And so I think in autism, the field of autism, they're really trying to do targeted studies where you really like gluten-free diet. It came from my uh, medicals, the University of Rochester did this study and they totally said it didn't work when the study was totally faulty. I mean, it really was. And it hurt so many people because they would say, now you don't need to be gluten-free because the study shows it doesn't work. And it was because they they excluded anybody with diarrhea. Well, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I swear. Let's just take out the
0: people who are most affected by it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. you know. So in any event, you're right about that, and I think we have to kind of build that into uh, our knowledge. that we, uh, uh, we have to use the information we have, and we just have to use our clinical judgment. I was trained in Rochester where clinical judgment was key. So I always tell people, I use labs to confirm, but I don't treat labs. I treat the kids.
0: Yeah, you treat the kids, and you treat the individual kids, which is kind of the point you were just making with study. That's another issue with studies. If, if you come up with a result that's an average result. But that average result doesn't take into account the pretty significant individual variation of results that might all average out to a null finding, you know, like no no change. But it doesn't acknowledge that 10 kids had an incredible change, you know, incredible positive change. And for those kids and those parents, exactly, that's, that's life changing, you know, even though the study might have been a null result and null finding. And so that's why it is so important to treat the individual and not, you know, to respect the research, but understand its limitations in terms of guiding clinical practice.
1: And ask the question, which is not asked, what is it about those t- 10 kids that had them respond? I mean, it's like, I mean, I remember, I know at uh, time's running out, but I remember I went to a lecture down towards New York City by a neurologist on the drug Namenda. Now I had been using Nemenda, uh, Memantine, or Memantine, for kids in the autism spectrum with pretty decent results in some kids, but it was only one in six, one in seven, which to me is not good. I have so much <laughs> the results. And so this guy gave his lecture and I told him when I was doing it and the results, he said, are you kidding? One in six or one in seven in a condition we have nothing for that's short of amazing. For me, it wasn't because I'm used to such better results, but that's the point that, so if you can help one in six kids with something that's really got a very low risk, you know, high benefit to risk ratio, and yeah, the others you do with trial doesn't work, okay. But if you could figure out which ones will respond, and and I have over the years kind of, you know, tightened that up a bit. But the point being is, if you can help kids so much with certain things, and maybe not others, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's the thing, as long as you're not hurting them, there is nothing wrong with having some things that may only work in a certain percentage, you know what I'm saying? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And like, like I said, I think that is the direction: more personalized medicine, personalized supplementation based on genetics, genomics, epigenetics, microbiome patterns. Even like we know, different microbiome patterns can affect the response to medication and supplements for that matter. So I, th- I think we're kind of just on the 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 very early stages of that being a thing and and you know even AI and some of the new tools that are becoming available might help us to be able to make sense of that and then crunch all of the the data that we're starting to collect. But Dr. Bach, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell everyone where they can find more info about your book and just follow your work and and stay in touch with you? What's what's the best uh, way to do that? If
1: find the book. They can go to Amazon and it's uh, Brain Inflamed. Uncovering the Hidden causes of uh, Mood Disorders, Anxiety, Depression in Adolescents and Teens. And then uh, my website is uh, com. that's P-O-C-K, and the integrative, not with an I-V-E at the end. And if they need to get information or call my office, it's 845-758-0001. And... um, yeah. I mean, basically there's a lot on the websites and the book, I really think when we're talking about brain inflamed, I, I think for parents, the book was written for parents. So it's really, I mean, a lot of doctors and protect, practitioners have read it, but the book I hope you see was really made to be very understandable and, and use it as something you can go to your own physician with, you know, unless everybody has to see me, of course not. You go to your own physician, you bring the book, you bring the questions, you bring the clues, and, and hopefully, uh, maybe you can start the process.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic resource. And you'll see the Amazon reviews are exemplary. You've, you see a lot of parents talking about how the light turned on for them, you know, after reading the book and feeling, again, like they'd seen so many different doctors and just so frustrated to not feel, get any validation for what they know is true. And then fi- finally finding some answers or or even potential answers, just knowing that there could be these things that they could investigate and and get to the root of what's going on, that gives parents hope and kids hope. And to me, that's like the biggest gift for this population because they they spent years really feeling hopeless, I think. And just the the possibility that they could find a solution to the the problem is is really an amazing gift. So let's
1: end that with realistic hope. You know, and then you want people to have false expectations. And, you know, when kids are sick a long time, you, 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 you do the best you can to bring everything back. You don't know what changes may be ingrained in there and things. But realistic hope to me is so key. And so, so many of them have been left without any hope at all. And to me, that is, it's really a tragedy. It's really a tragedy. Because we go through this whole thing, uh, you know, about placebos and hope and psych. Like, well, we know the mind body is so important. And then having parents and even the kids, some of the kids I see are hopeless. They are yeah, hopeless. Absolutely. It, it breaks my heart. And hopefully, I, you know, that's, listen, this is my 40th year. I'm still working, uh, you know, because I want to, because I love it. And because, you know, I it changed the trajectory of these kids' lives. And as I said in the book, it's not only the kids, it's the families, you know, it's the parents, the siblings, the, the uncles, aunts, and grandparents, because these kids, when they're really bad, as you know, they can be really, really bad. So It can
0: wreak havoc on the family. And it's worth pointing out, as we conclude here, that everything we're talking about applies to adults, too. You know, the the population that we focused on in the interview and your population is kids, adolescents, and teens. But guess what? Every mechanism that we're talking about here also affects adults with behavioral and psychological conditions. So,
1: hundred percent. I treat adults as well, yeah. so I, I totally agree with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, no question. No question. All
0: right. Well. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Bogg. It was a great conversation. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Send your questions, com slash podcast question. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscressor.com slash You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash or facebook.com slash L A C. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.